0: Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10, or two months' access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new reader. This week, we bring you one of the podcast highlights of 2020, an interview with Madeline Davies about her book Lights for the Path, a guide through grief, pain and loss, published by SPCK. It's available to buy from the Church Times bookshop. You can explore our growing archive of podcast interviews at churchtimes.co.uk forward slash podcast and on platforms such as SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. Other highlights from 2020 include Tom Holland on whether Jesus was a revolutionary, Leroy Logan, whose story was portrayed in the BBC Small Axe series, and Tara Isabella Burton on her book Strange Rites, New Religions for a Godless World. We wish all our listeners a very happy new year. Madeline hello. Hi Ed. Great to have you here um, from your maternity leave to talk about um, your first book I think it is is that right?
1: Yeah thanks for having me on.
0: I really got lot out of reading the book um, I thought I'd just start by asking you talking about that one of the reasons you wanted to write it was to offer reassurance to anyone worried that their response to death or, and their grief was not normal. Yeah
1: um, so this was um s- yeah this was sort of something that i I thought about, and then I had an interview with um, somebody that leads a counseling project for young people at our hospice in south london um, and she was saying that is a really common worry for teenagers um, that 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 their response is in some way abnormal so um It could be that they're feeling quite numb about it or they're not crying or they're carrying on aspects of their life as normal. Um, And there can be a concern that that in some way uh, means they're not grieving properly or um, it suggests that they didn't love the person. Um, But actually, I think the point is that there is no normal way to um, respond to grief Um, and what I wanted to try and get across in the book by interviewing lots of different people is that people respond in very different ways and it doesn't really help if um, in addition to the loss you're also putting your reaction to it under the spotlight and sort of agonizing over whether you're normal and I think sort of being a teenager that question of um, whether you're normal whether you're different from other people it is kind of a background worry anyway and maybe it's natural that that would carry over into the way that you are, are grieving.
0: And I mean, you interview all kinds of um, really interesting people in the book. Um, you also tell your own story as well. Could, would you mind saying a bit about a bit about that? Because this is very personal for you.
1: Yes. Yeah, so um, my mum was diagnosed with cancer when I was 10 um, and she died two years later. Um, so I guess my experience is of... Um, kind of watching somebody um, decline from a disease um, and probably having that sort of the potential to lose them on the horizon and and worrying about that. Um, One of the things that I discovered when I was reading literature um, is that some studies suggest that that period of kind of anticipating loss um, can be more difficult psychologically than the loss itself. Um, Just that kind of Looking ahead to that potential loss, Um, I guess sort of one of the reasons I wanted to interview lots of other people is that I became very aware that that's quite different from um, a sudden loss or sort of the trauma of um, an unexpected death. Um, So I tried to interview people for whom that had been the case, as well as other people like me who um, had had time to kind of anticipate it.
0: I think you write about in your book that the idea of losing a parent was something you you had thought about even before your mum's diagnosis.
1: Yeah so um, I'm not quite sure where that kind of worry came from. It might just be that it's sort of a common worry for children. I think partly I'd read a lot of children's literature where um, a parent or both parents had died and I have reflected a bit on whether that kind of planted the seed that it was a possibility. I think also my mum's mum had died of cancer and my dad's dad had died in a car accident when he was a baby so the fact that they had both lost a parent probably also shaped that um fear and that i knew it was a possibility because it had happened to them
0: i found really interesting the book the way you talk about it particularly to um professor john wyatt um who's author of the book dying well about the importance of having information during that period um when there's a diagnosis um perhaps up to up to the person dying um could you say a bit about that why actually often knowing what's happening is is quite important?
1: Yeah so um, one of the things we talked about is um, if somebody dies suddenly for example in a car accident um, he was saying that people's fears um, about what happened to the person or what they look like in particular can actually be worse than the reality because our imaginations can go into overdrive so he actually encourages people to see the person after they've died um, which can be Um, more helpful than never seeing it and then having these awful imaginings about what the person looked like. Um, I think also um, being kept in the dark um, is not helpful for teenagers if it's a kind of a case of picking up hints and whispers um, from people and never been quite sure um, what's happening and feeling excluded can, can be very upsetting so um, I kind of look at the importance of um, asking questions and, and kind of getting factual information um, and also kind of perhaps if you were kept in the dark um, it's kind of never too late to ask those questions so if it would be helpful for you to get um just the kind of factual information about what happened and and why um it's kind of never too late to ask a doctor about that um one of the things that I talked to uh, Professor Wyatt about is um kind of guilt that can accompany death and even if there's absolutely no rational reason to think that you were to blame um, or that you kind of carry any responsibility for what happened it's still possible for um, people to get this idea that they are in some way to blame for what happened and so he said he often actually um, explicitly asked that question just to volunteer it to put it out there in case that's something that somebody needs to um, kind of speak out and be reassured about.
0: I should just say that this book's sort of principally aimed at teenagers, although I mean I found it enormously helpful myself. But it's particularly that that sort of age group who're experiencing this that you're yeah. talking about.
1: Yeah, I guess I was sort of trying to write the kind of book that I maybe would have found helpful when I was a teenager. So it was trying to go back to that time in my life, really. And I guess try and write in a way that was accessible for a slightly younger audience. But um, I am kind of hopeful that maybe people that work with young people might find it helpful as well. And perhaps reading some of the stories from people that I interviewed who are looking back either a very short period of time or a number of decades on being bereaved as a teenager, um, that might give youth leaders or people in youth ministry or parents um, some idea of sort of the range of emotions that teenagers might be going through.
0: I think you say in the book that um, being bereaved as a teenager is perhaps more common than, than people think.
1: I guess sort of when I was looking back in history, um, it was um, very common, really. And there was one study I looked at. Um, which found that about two thirds of um, British prime ministers in a certain period had actually lost a parent as a child. And it looks at the psychology and how that might have shaped shaped their careers, which was really interesting, but it did make the point that it was perhaps much more common. um, And it is now thankfully much rarer. but um, still kind of in a, sort of an average classroom, um, you probably have at least one child um, who'd been bereaved. And I think they did uh, one study of kind of secondary school children, and it found that about a quarter had lost um, either a relative or a friend that was very close to them. So um, I think it's sort of more common that perhaps people realise. I know when I was a teenager, I think people do assume that you have both parents and that can be quite difficult because you're just waiting for people to say oh what time's your mum picking you up or um what do your parents do and having to explain it gets really tiring and also very upsetting and then you also have to deal with the other person's reaction because they're very embarrassed or they're quite horrified um that they put their foot in it in that way um so yeah, perhaps just making the point that there is a potential that somebody in your youth group or in your classroom um, doesn't have both parents.
0: And, and the interviews in the book, um, I mean, some of the people, um, it's, it's that they lost a parent when they were around in their teenage years. But for others, it's perhaps another close person like a sibling or, or a grandparent.
1: Yeah, um, so I, I interview some people who um, lost a sibling and I also um, look at the loss of a grandparent and a friend and I had a really nice interview with Malcolm Geit, who is a chaplain at a college in Cambridge and he was making the point that perhaps some people feel that... Um, yeah that the, the grieving the loss of a grandparent because it's some someone older is sort of somehow less legitimate or um they should be embarrassed that they're so um kind of upset by it um and he really wanted to challenge that idea and and you know all loss is a loss it's it's a loss of somebody close to you and other people made the point that actually many people today are incredibly close to their grandparent. It might be that their parents um were away or working and so their grandparent actually spent a lot of time looking after them um you know, often people are in extended families and, and they are incredibly close to those people. And I guess um, sort of in, in the current climate and thinking about um, who the coronavirus is being targeting, it might be um, that a number of young people have lost grandparents to the virus. And so um, hopefully the book makes the point that um, that loss is completely um completely legitimate and that your feelings um should be sort of respected and um treated um very seriously
0: another thing that struck me in the book is that um in the sort of the time around when someone you know a family member someone very close to you dies there could be quite a lot of pressure about um the final moments and and also a fear that your memory of them is going to just be how they were in those final moments but you mean you spoke to people about that didn't you
1: yeah, I think um, I sort of talk about the fact that in films or in books, I think sort of that final conversation um, is often quite dramatic. And there's some kind of um, final um, encounter that you have to have or something that you have to say or something that you've been storing up that you need to get out before the person um, fades Um And that kind of wasn't my experience. Um, I think me and my mum were incredibly close. um, And um, we said that we loved each other all the time. Um, And I I think a lot of our conversations when she was um, ill were quite ordinary ones. And I was really reassured that the counselor I spoke to the hospice was saying, you know, you'll really treasure those ordinary conversations that you have with somebody who's dying um, about what you had for tea and what's happening at school and what your friends are up to. And she actually encourages young people to um, record those ordinary. Conversations on their phone because they can be really precious to play back. Um, but I do also kind of look at the possibility that there might be teenagers um, who do want to say something to the person um, before they die or might have regrets about what they did or didn't say. So I explore that a bit as well. Um, I think the memory one's really interesting because I, when my mum died, I had these um, really acute worries that I was going to forget her. Um, and I was sort of obsessed with trying to sort of store up all these very specific memories um, about times that we'd had or how her voice sounded or what she looked like and I think it's kind of quite reassuring that I can write in the book that um, you know I'm in my late 30s now and I do have very very vivid memories that haven't faded and I hope that kind of reassures people and um, you know my oldest interviewee was in her late 60s and it was really lovely that when we talked about her dad who had died um, you know she had all these really lovely memories of time spent with him and very very specific memories um, which I hope kind of will reassure people that you you don't forget the person um, I think sort of some people talk about um, grief can be a bit of a fog and your mind isn't very clear, and that can be quite worrying. And I think when that fog lifts, um, it's reassuring that those memories um, will come back. Because I think in, when you're really in the maelstrom of grief, your mind is, is quite messed up and that can be quite scary. Um, but I also look in the penultimate chapter at um, sort of the art of remembering and how we can um, remember people. Uh, one of the really interesting interviews I had with, was with a couple of priests who talk about the fact that perhaps the church um, can play a bigger role in kind of um, rituals around memory and remembering and marking anniversaries. And I think perhaps there is an appetite for that um, out there.
0: I mean, it comes across in the book. I mean, you, you're, you obviously had a, a wonderful mother and a very close relationship. And and I'm sure your your memories are. The vast majority extremely positive but you also talk to people who have perhaps had a more complex or difficult relationship with the person who died
1: yeah so, so one of my really inter- interesting interviews um, was with Carrie who is around my age. Um, And one of the reasons that her grief was quite complicated was that her dad um, was a a pastor who was um, very much kind of venerated in the community, sort of a local hero, Um, and she actually had quite a difficult relationship with him, which I'm sure a lot of teenagers can identify with. It's really normal to have quite a fraught relationship with a parent. Um, But when he died very suddenly in in a cycling accident, um, she had sort of a a very complicated grieving process because she was trying to balance this fact that she loved him and he died but also that she'd had such a kind of fraught connection to him and it took her a long time to be able to to kind of she talked about holding those two truths together being able to say yes i loved him and he died and we had a difficult relationship um and she actually interestingly i was talking about guilt earlier um had this real worry that in some way she'd brought about his death or that god had brought about his death um to teach her some kind of lesson um or to make make a point to her and it was only sort of when she had counselling much later in life that she was able to get reassurance that there was absolutely no connection between those feelings and what had happened.
0: I thought there's really helpful part of the book talking about um, the funeral I mean you you write very honestly about how um, really difficult and quite surreal that you, you found the whole experience.
1: Yeah I think I was a bit compromised in, in terms of writing about it because all of the um, kind of literature suggests that it's really important for for teenagers to attend a funeral. Um, it's, it's sort of an important stage of grieving, but um, I personally really didn't want to go to my mum's funeral and I have reflected quite a lot on that in writing the book. Um, and I think it's pro- possibly something around sort of not wanting to say goodbye and also, um, having to do it in front of so many people. And I know sort of some people who I would talk to found it really healing to see how many people turned out for a funeral and how many people had loved the person who had died. Um, I think I felt very self-conscious and um, very aware that people would be watching my family and their reaction. And and that really worried me at the time. And I also felt quite territorial about our grief, but I sort of felt that it wasn't for anybody else to, um, be crying or being upset because it wasn't sort of their mum who had died um which I know isn't sort of a reaction that everybody has but when I look back I think that's sort of part of the reason why I found it so difficult.
0: You interviewed the Reverend Andrew Lightbaum um who, who says some very helpful things including that we have to remember the whole of a life not just the tough bits at the end and that's very important
1: particularly at the yeah. funeral. Yeah, he was a fantastic interview, and one of the reasons that I um, asked him about funerals is that I visited his parish, and I noticed that his churchyard um, is very large, and there's a large number of people um, buried there, or who have their ashes there. Um, And he um, often tweets as well about taking funerals, and I I think he has sort of such a a lovely ministry um, in terms of being with families at that point. Um, And I also interviewed him because um, he actually lost his own father as a teenager so he has that experience of of being a grieving teenager as well and he was able to sort of talk about the fact that there can be a really difficult end to a life and in his case um his father had an alcohol problem and, and so it was kind of quite a complicated end to his life um, but he was able to sort of look back on the whole of his dad's life and the whole of his character and acknowledge the fact that there were um, really good things um, as well and I think um, the counselor I spoke to also talked about the fact that teenagers can sometimes really zone in on an argument that they had or an area of conflict with a parent and she really encourages them to say um, you know look at the whole of The whole of um, your relationship because that's what your parent would have done they they won't have been holding on to those um instances where you um had an argument they'll be looking at the whole of you as a young person who who they love and cherish so it's really important um to balance out the tendency of our minds to kind of go straight to the negative or to worry about some um sort of hurtful conversation that you might have had
0: writing as a a christian you also um talk in the book um about christian hope and um already sort of address that head on what 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 we believe about life after death and you interviewed a few people about that didn't you
1: yeah i think so one of the decisions i had to make when i started writing the book was whether i was going to include um elements about my faith and about theology because obviously I'm aware that that potentially sort of limits who um, it might be helpful for. There might be people that don't have a faith who find it very hard to relate to those chapters. Um, I think because it was such an integral part of my grief um, and also um, sort of how I got through what happened, um, I did want to include it. And I also felt it was quite important to... um, share the fact that the, the Christian faith um, does have a very hopeful message for people who are grieving. And I did want to kind of articulate that quite explicitly. Um, I also felt that um, I was a teenager in, in churches and in youth groups. And I often felt that it wasn't something that was preached about very often or that we talked about, um, despite the fact that we all know that everybody's going to die. I'd sort of rarely heard a sermon about exactly what happens when we die. And so I I did want to sort of address that head on and I found it really helpful having sort of conversations um, with people and also doing quite a lot of reading um, around what some of the biblical ideas are um, about what happens when we die um, and what our ultimate hope is. I really enjoyed um, Tom Wright's Surprised by Hope, um, where he suggests that perhaps we've lost or forgotten the, the biblical vision of life after death and um, I found that actually incredibly helpful so um, yeah I know that sort of some people um, sort of are more comfortable with it being a bit of a mystery or um, focusing on the here and now but um, I did think it was important to um, try and look at some um, sort of biblical ideas about what happens when we die.
0: You also write about um, when, when the loved one is, has died um, often the other parent who's who's left and how they're coping and and it often teenagers are more worried than people might think about how that parent is doing
1: yeah so um some of the literature that i looked at in terms of research and was saying that one of the key determinants of um outcomes for young people who lose a parent in terms of how they cope um was how well the surviving parent um responded to to the death. And that kind of makes a lot of sense to me personally, um, and was really borne out when I interviewed um, the hospice counsellor, because she said that um, the main worry for a lot of the adolescents that she speaks to is that they're concerned about the surviving parent. And she often says that even though it's a parent who'll get in touch with the service and refer their teenager, often the best thing that they could do for their family is to get help themselves. I found that really helpful to hear and, and to learn that it's um, a really common um, experience. And actually a lot of the, the novels that I looked at, which I quote from, deal with that experience of grieving as a teenager and at the same time worrying that your mum or dad is, is falling apart or struggling to cope and, and how much more difficult that, that kind of makes your life.
0: And often for someone like yourself, who being the eldest sibling, there's often, particularly that person can take on a lot of responsibility. After their yeah. my parents
1: died. Yeah, I think um, that's probably the case for me because I had a younger brother and a younger sister. And probably um, I took a lot upon myself rather than actually people burdening me. I, The way that I responded to the grief was to think I want to try and do everything that my mum had done and to look after them and to do things around the house Um, and I think that was in a way kind of a big distraction from my grief was just being incredibly busy all the time so I sort of had that on top of my schoolwork. and I think sort of at the time as well one of the things I reflected on is that as a teenager you feel like an adult you feel very very mature Um, and sometimes people can see that um maturity and and almost treat you like a miniature adult but actually when I look back I was incredibly young um, and one of the teachers that I interviewed said it's really important to remember that um, teenagers are technically sort of still children and however resilient um, a teenager might look or however well they're coping it's really important to remember that and to check in and to make sure that they're not taking on too much and that that resilience doesn't become a mask for um, what's really going on.
0: think you also write about I think it's the Raymond Carver quote about the small good things.
1: Yeah that's um, a short story of Raymond Carver's that I really like about some grieving parents who find comfort in a bakery um, eating these bread rolls and I was thinking about um, I suppose there's there's a lot of sort of profound um, advice that you get when you're grieving but my best friend at the time who's still my best friend um, she suggested just putting The Simpsons on Um, and I remember at the time thinking oh that's that that can't be correct you know there must be something more um kind of serious or more profound that I should be doing but I did try it anyway and actually it was incredibly helpful (laughs) and just a complete distraction and escape and so I sort of wanted to give permission to people to do things like that and it might not be the Simpsons it might not be another box set but I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with escaping into tv or to film or to whatever it is that is a distraction for you.
0: You, you write that really one of your, the key messages you hope people will take away from the book is that grief isn't some sort of test that you're required to pass.
1: Yeah, I think that was sort of tied up with the idea of people worrying that they were grieving in a way that wasn't normal. So I sort of wanted to, to give people reassurance that they don't need to put their own reaction under the microscope. Um, and one of the quotes that I really liked um, came from Malcolm Guy, who I interviewed, and he was saying grief is as big and as long and as complicated as your life with somebody was. Just like you didn't have to do all of the getting to know and love the person all at once in a special three day crash course. You did it gradually. You have to do the same with grieving because it's like the other side of it. Grief is an expression of love. I really like that. And I think that's very much reflected in his anthology of of poems for people who are grieving, which I highly recommend. And I I really sort of love that idea that, um, yeah, that grief is an expression of, of our love for a person and that it's something that you can do um gradually I know sort of from speaking to some people that took them years or even decades to really feel that they had yeah that, that they had grieved um you know some people just went completely numb or shut down or weren't able to really process their feelings initially um and I think it's sort of reassuring to know that that many decades on it's still possible to, to sort of do that work of healing and to, you know, get counselling or speak to somebody or um, engage with it again. Um, there's not kind of a deadline for it. And I think that that sort of message that you don't have to move on, um, or that you don't have to get over it, is is very reassuring um, to hear.
0: Um, Madeline, we talked a bit about Malcolm Guy, who, of course, writes the Poets' Corner column for the Church Times and has, has been on this podcast, and I know his... Poems have been um, particularly valued by people, particularly at this time. Um, is, there, is there a particular one that, that you found um, helpful in, in thinking about all of this?
1: So I really like his poem "Pilgrimage," um, which he actually um, had at the both the baptism um, and the funeral for a young mother. Um, and I first heard it at Greenbelt um, a few years ago, and I just think it's really beautiful um, and ultimately very hopeful as well.
2: Come, dip a scallop shell into the font for birth and blessings as a child of God. The living water rises from that fount whence all things come, that you may bathe and wade and find the flow and learn at last to follow the course of love upstream towards your home. The day is done and all the fields lie fallow. One thing is needful. One voice calls your name. Take the true compass now. Be compassed round by clouds of witness, cords of love unbound. Turn to the sun. Begin your pilgrimage. Take time with him to find your true direction. He travels with you through this darkened age and wakes you every day to resurrection.
1: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.